This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You know, I think what a lot of people are finding uh, disturbing about all of this attack in uh, in London and such, and and certainly why those in the UK are, are questioning it. And and you know, let's be honest, police uh, from the time of this initial call, within eight minutes, uh, the attackers were dead, which uh, is pretty impressive. But when you see afterwards that the people involved in the attack, at least one of them anyway, in a documentary about this whole movement, at what point do we say, uh, okay, uh, at what point does the propaganda, does, does the sympathizer become dangerous? Is the sympathizer just as dangerous as those that attack? How do we balance security and human rights? David Harris is with us in Cigna Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. He's with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Oh, fine. Thanks, Scott. A lot of interesting things on the go. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, obviously, uh, police knew about these people, or certainly knew about the one in the documentary. Uh, at what point does a sympathizer cross the line and become a threat? And this is the great problem, isn't it? In so many ways, we see it and have seen it in Canada, where you remember the individual who uh, attempted his own suicide bombing at the time when he was facing arrest, uh, not long ago, Aaron Driver. Um, He had not only been on the police radar screens, but he was uh, in a kind of house arrest and yet was able to organize himself to the extent of getting explosives together and so on. In Britain, you can see an almost object lesson in the difficulties here. And the authorities had set up something called uh, Project, um, I'm trying to remember now, Project Danube. And this was aimed at bringing together uh, police, especially on a regional basis, so that there might be some more collaborative approaches between MI5, the British Security Service, on the one hand, and uh, local and uh, regional policing. Uh, this, in turn, had followed uh, one of the Islamist uh, killer outrages that we were familiar with when uh, a number of years ago in Woolwich, England, you'll recall that uh, a uh, young British soldier virtually had his head sawn off uh, on the main street as a result of all this. So it's an ongoing problem, and uh, a number of the people who featured in some of the biggest terror attacks in Britain recently were themselves uh, on the police radar. But this gets back to a number of uh, features and characteristics of the threat that the British and we, in fact, are facing, um, some of which seem almost uh, insoluble. Um, You have, first of all, in Britain, a situation in which the sheer number of uh, possible enemy operatives, because this is what we're talking in the end, this is now an international war that's been uh, launched against us all in the West and beyond the West. Uh, What we we found is that uh, in Britain, there was a lot of talk about 500, I think, ongoing investigations, and then the indications were that these investigations and others might have included perhaps 3,000. Now, think about how staggering that number is when you contemplate that to give saturated intelligence coverage, surveillance monitoring, you might need up to 20 or 30 highly specialized officers per person. 
and now contemplate the more recently released figures that suggest that above and beyond the 3,000 who might be considered relatively immediate threats to life and limb, you have a further 20,000 who uh, themselves are considered jihadists and uh, from, uh, from um, which pool uh, you may well find the uh, future killers that we've, of the sort we've just seen. So there you're talking 23,000. Uh, how many more have been undiscovered or could turn at a moment's notice? Uh, this is the kind of issue. And then against this kind of threat, you have the legal constitutional backdrop, something we're familiar with in Canada, where uh, you cannot just go and pick someone up just because you are morally certain that an individual is perhaps even an imminent threat. You have to be able to justify that according to the laws, which means the Constitution. In Canada, before you can charge somebody, you uh, have to um, uh, be confident that you could uh, have a successful prosecution and the prosecution would be in the public interest. That immediately translates into confidence on the part of uh, the Crown and the police that they can meet the very heavy burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody is uh, involved in criminal activity, in this case of a terrorist nature. So you start to see the way the cards are stacked uh, when it comes to the uh, police and the dilemma and challenges they face. A very difficult situation all around. But when you have someone like this attacker who's filmed in a documentary, I mean, are those not hate crimes? Is he not spewing hate? Um, it, it depends what exactly, of course, was said. But that also gets us to another feature. And although I'd be the last person, especially as a lawyer, to say, so what? In terms of our overall objective, one presumes, of getting an extremely dangerous individual off the streets, um, one then has to face the really grim truth that if you get somebody who, say, has not been convicted of anything before, and, and particularly nothing in this sort of realm, then realistically, this individual or an individual similarly placed may be facing uh, conditional release, maybe uh, a matter of weeks or months in jail, uh, okay, maybe three or four or five years, but one day that individual will be back. And it's excellent that you raise that issue because only days before this latest disaster, we found uh, a good deal of discussion in Britain about the fact that roughly 70 individuals, seven zero individuals, who had been imprisoned uh, rough, about a decade earlier, when, uh, on terrorism-related offenses, were coming up to release. They have served their sentences under law. And so just picture that on top of everything else that you and I have discussed in, uh, as part of the threat picture. Then having 70 tried and true, if I can put it that way, extremists on release. Again, multiply 70 if you, if, if you believe they are all threats, and they won't all be, but how do you know? So if you have 70, multiply that by, what, 20 highly specialized uh, police individuals who might be used and required to surveil them uh, 24 hours a day. 
Um, I don't even know what countries have the kinds of budgets that could allow them to survive uh, doing that. When you see officers, ordinary officers, on uh, in some locations in Canada, $100,000 a year pay. So, you know, then you've got, of course, the equipment, the surveillance requirements, involvement of lawyers to secure warrants and uh, um, the purchasing of all kinds of interception and high-technology devices. Uh, this is why increasingly people like me come back to certain policy categories when we uh, debate this. And it's the very sort of thing our politicians of all stripes run from uh, like fury. Uh, and I'm thinking of immigration policy. We um, know that, of course, not all uh, individuals have been involved in these kinds of things, including those non-Islamist uh, terror or extremist threats. Uh, are going to be immigrants or refugees. But it is now, I think, undeniable that uh, a considerable proportion of terrorists come from what can easily be described as immigrant communities. And a lot of the people in those immigrant communities are struggling heroically, one might have said manfully in the old days, to resist these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact simply remains that uh, this is becoming an insuperable challenge, as I think the statistics we've just been reviewing here indicate. And yet, look what you found. Days before an election in Britain, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister May, having gone immediately to the question of somehow securing the Internet, not in and of itself a bad thing in relation to extremism and terrorism, but where is the mention of the gigantic numbers of immigrants and refugees entering Britain? And the numbers in per capita terms entering Canada are more huge. Uh, and these systems, as many people now are saying, are essentially corrupted by uh, political desires to import votes and ingratiate the parties and politicians with those already connected to immigrant communities. And in the face of that, it just becomes more and more difficult as the demographics shift to really come to grips honestly with what we're dealing with. Uh, can you be a extremist sympathizer and not be a threat? Isn't or is a sympathizer a threat? Well, I mean, uh, I think it's fair to say by definition, um, you can be an extremist sympathizer, depending on how you define that without being a threat. That, that would be what people uh, bend over backwards to refer to as a non-violent extremist. But that is a bit simplistic, and one has to... What about the people they inspire? Exactly. And one has to honestly ask oneself what it would mean if you were a child coming up, say, in a family, or coming up in a local community or institution where you are uh, told without uh, constructive interpretation, and I'm just looking at a, an excerpt uh, from the, uh, from the uh, Quran, uh, uh, chapter 310, as for the infidels, they shall be fuel of hell fire. Um, there are instructions that uh, uh, Jews and Christians cannot be the friends of the Muslims, that Muslims can only, that Jews and Christians will only be friends to each other. Well, we all know that in a variety of scriptures, of a variety of religions, any number of passages can be interpreted in unwholesome and dangerous ways. Mm -hmm. We've seen that historically. So Islam is not unique to facing controversies within the ranks. But what we need increasingly is an honest recognition of this fact 
and specifically before governments, uh, before police, uh, before interfaith outreach groups, connect with specific Islamic organizations and institutions, or Christian ones, or Jewish, or Hindu, or other ones. We want to have some clarity when it comes to these teachings, what for the purposes of a given institution is the view of, for example, the passage that says that when the season comes, you will smite them by the neck or whatever. Um, it's, e- it's easy enough for people to reasonably conclude that some of these passages had uh, a relevance in an ancient time and place. But we need clear direction that they may no longer have relevance in Canada, uh, in, in this century, and, uh, Do we and need that? Good. Don't we have that? I mean, doesn't our civilization just demand that? No. I mean, and as you mentioned, lots of religions will have things that are unflattering like that in there. It's, it's all left to the interpretation. So how do we change the interpretation? Well, you've got, of course, uh, any number of uh, Muslim groups who are dedicated to this kind of thing, and there's been research by Muslims in the States trying to clarify these things uh, and so on. But we need to expect this. It, it may not be good enough to have people uh, signing, uh, uh, you know, in organizations and imams signing condemnations of terrorism without clear definitions of what we mean by terrorism. And uh, that would even include uh, statements that it's wrong to kill innocents. What is an innocent for the purposes of uh, a given ideology? What do I consider to be an innocent, for example? I, you know, if an innocent is, in my terms, simply somebody who follows my ideology, then that may be of limited uh, relief, shall we say, to people who follow another ideology or religion. So we need to be very, very straightforward about this and enough of the uh, uh, well-intended but ambiguous solutions that some have come up with, especially politicians. And by politicians, I'm talking about the range from city councillors and aldermen all the way to uh, the prime ministers of the day. Wouldn't you have to clarify all religions then, as you mentioned? Yes, if you're dealing with, absolutely, if you're dealing with um, any kind of uh, major threat, and now we're overwhelmingly, of course, dealing with an Islamist threat as opposed to an Islamic one, we have got to... um, be straightforward about this. If we find ourselves dealing in similar terms with, for example, uh, Christian terrorists, as we very definitely were, especially with the militia movements uh, of uh, 20 or 30 years ago, then we, we expect, as uh, members of this community, to define and describe what exactly is meant by any passages that are invoked, especially routinely invoked, by uh, nonviolent extremists and by violent extremists. Same with uh, Judaism, you remember there was an outrage in, uh, among the Jewish community when it emerged, I think, that uh, there had been two Jews, uh, both, I think, linked to Canada, who had been plotting many years ago to blow up uh, a mosque in the United States. And similarly, when a Jew shot up a, a mosque in uh, Israel. So you see people coming out straightforwardly. We've got Muslims who are willing to do that. And that's what we must look to because, frankly, it's a function of a civilized, broader national community that we do this for one another and for ourselves. Is that the community that's going to have to fix this rather than uh, political policy or security officials? Uh, It's it's got to be a combination because when you've got life and death threats, uh, of course you're going to look to members of the community to help out in the kinds of ways I'm describing, and many will be doing this. 
but we uh, we we cannot uh, see and permit our own governments at any level to abdicate their responsibility in the name of deference to my community, yours, or uh, any other community, whether it's uh, Muslim or otherwise. Uh, I, I would imagine to those in the UK, this is even more frightening, the fact that uh, this one of these attackers was on police radar, uh, has been in a documentary. I'm guessing that... Uh, that's uh, the people in the UK are going to have a hard time understanding that. I'm guessing. I, yes. I'm thinking people yes. anywhere would. Yes, you're exactly right, and uh, I can only come back with the loyally, if in the context rather pathetic response, that um, uh, when you see things that you believe sincerely um, on the basis of good common sense amount to evidence for whatever proposition you're pressing, that, that, for example, this individual should have been arrested and, and charged, the, the lawyer's question will be, okay, you may consider that to be evidence, but would that be considered admissible evidence for the purposes of the charge we're contemplating? And that's where we yeah. run into these terrible complications. Now, there is one other element, and that is, if things go badly enough, and in other words, if we keep mismanaging all of this the way we have almost consciously or conscientiously been doing, we may find we get ourselves into an emergency situation, which is not unknown in law and, and in war. And in an emergency situation, who knows what could be invoked uh, with the agreement of courts. Uh, and we would not necessarily like some of the inhibitions on civil liberties that would come with that or the unpredictables that can flow from that kind of thing. So it's one of those reasons why we all, of whatever background, have the most profoundly vested interest in sorting this out in a reasoned, prompt kind of way so that we don't find the adverse uh, developments uh, coming upon us. Uh, with the Prime Minister saying, uh, Prime Minister May saying, uh, too much tolerance of extremism in the country, are, is she signaling that she's ready to test those waters? She appears to be. Again, she's in an ugly situation with the various legal constraints. Um, many people, not unreasonably at all, have said, uh, where was she? Where has she been? Where have her fellow politicians been? All these years, she'd been Home Secretary, I believe, had been responsible in any event for policing for six years when indeed there were cuts in policing. And I'm saying this is somebody who might uh, be willing to listen to those who positively cringe at the possibility that her Labour competitor, Mr. Corbyn, could replace her, given his ambiguous approach to uh, radicalism for many years. But where was she? Where are our political leaders? Um, this is not news. None of this is news to them by this time. Certainly not anyone who's come near government because they're getting re regular briefings. Um, again, the polit politics has been playing uh, unduly in this realm. And unfortunately, many of the rest of us have, I think, been soothed by wonderfully encouraging speeches, talk about compassion. I mean, you reflect on such things as the intake of 40,000 Syrian refugees in one year. It all sounds very admirable, and I'm sure is well-intended by those locally who are motivated to help. But I, I must say, with great respect, this is not the behavior of the serious people 
facing the kinds of well-defined threats that we're now facing, threats that are expanding and will lead to the kind of suffering that uh, could be problematic, particularly in the case of Syrians, where uh, many have been exposed to an educational system that is based on a variety of forms of hatred of a severe nature. And uh, when we have polls that I think have pointed to over 10% of uh, some of the Syrian refugees who were polled out in the Middle East, uh, indicating that uh, they would support ISIS. So yeah, but on the other hand, you know, these were people that were, uh, you know, they were nationals for the most part. They weren't really people skipping back and forth. I mean, I guess there were reports of that, but in the end, they were raised in the UK. Oh, oh these these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, again, that's one of the difficulties we're now facing, uh, um, and I stand to be corrected on this. But my understanding was that uh, one individual was born in Pakistan. Uh, but then raised there, yes. But then raised in the UK. But it, here's, here's a, a question that may sound impudent and facetious, and I really don't mean it to be. Was he really raised in the UK? I, I don't know anything about him, you see. So what, what uh, values was he raised with? Uh, was he raised with a, a hatred of, uh, of the UK? Uh, was he raised with a love of the UK, but was it that maybe the circle in which he ran, whether a familial circle or other, hated the UK or hated the infidel in the, in the sorts of terms I've just uh, related? I don't know. And increasingly, birthplace and citizenship is becoming less and less persuasive as an indication of uh, loyalty and potential for uh, violent action against what one would in the old days have supposed to be one's own country. David Harris has been with us in Cigna Strategic Group. He is a terrorism expert. David, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember that uh, prior to Victoria Day long weekend, uh, there was chatter about uh, the LCB going on strike. We actually had a union representative on that was talking about uh, the threat of uh, creeping privatization. Uh, scheduling is a huge issue, uh, keeping them part time when they should be full time, this sort of stuff. Uh, and of course, uh, whenever there's the the inkling of a strike or the, the whiff of a strike around a long weekend, uh, people get all cranky and upset. But this one didn't seem to materialize. However, that being said, the union that represents the workers at the LCBO has requested a no board report from the Ministry of Labor. What does that all mean? And will we be worried when Canada Day rolls around? Can you imagine? Can you imagine celebrating Canada's 150th birthday without a drink in your hand? My goodness, how un-Canadian. Uh, to talk about all of this, Marvin Ryder, business, profess- uh, business professor at Groot School of Business at, of course, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. You know we always appreciate it. Uh, is this less about a strike and more about the process to reach a settlement? I'm going to say yes to that. So uh, here's a little uh, trivia for you. The LCBO is 91 years old, 91 years old. It hasn't been unionized for all of that time, but over the years there have been many threats of strike, but never once have the workers actually gone out on strike. Yes. What they typically do is pick a time that would be 
quite adverse to the LCBO, like a long weekend, in particular a long summer weekend, and they get this thing called a no-board report. In essence, what it is, you go to the ministry and you say, uh, the two sides, we're too far apart, we're not going anywhere, so uh, minister, um, you know, uh, I, I want a report that says we're not getting anywhere. When they get that report, there is a, a conciliator uh, appointed who will then meet with both sides and try to mediate some solution, but it also starts a clock ticking. Uh, after the report is issued, you have three weeks to reach a deal. If you don't, then one side or the other, one side can lock out the workers, the other can go on strike. So if I ask for one today, let me just think today is June the 6th, and I add three weeks, 21, that gets me to June 27th, and what's the big holiday? Oh yeah, July 1st, four days later. There's no coincidence in this timing. <laughs> uh, so is the, uh, is the LCBO being fair to the workers? Clearly the model is changing. Uh, they're feeling the squeeze. W- what sort of recourse do they have? Mm-hmm. So let's come at that in two different ways if I can. The workers will tell you, regardless of what's going on today, they feel the LCBO has been unfair. Uh, the LCBO offers alcohol products for actually a lot of hours in a week, you know, uh, sort of from 11 o'clock through to uh, 8 or 9 or 10 o'clock at night to seven days a week. And how the LCBO does this is they'll often schedule workers on sort of a permanent part-time basis, meaning you get a four-hour shift. You can count on that shift for five days a week, but wait a minute, four times five, that's only 20 hours. So, you know, I would rather you give me an 80-hour, or excuse me, a 40-hour shift, and that would mean fewer workers. The LCBO response says, well, we need this for flexibility to be able to surge when demand goes up and pull back when demand doesn't. And the workers are saying, look, that's not fair. And then to mention your buzzword about fairness, you know, at the same time, we're saying that a $15 an hour minimum wage is fair. Well, wait a minute. You're doing that so people can live. LCBO is not following it in their own policies, and it's a quasi-governmental organization. So they have plenty that they want to put on the table. They really want to see more full-time employment. Uh, yes, some wage increases, knowing the minimum wage is going up, but really it's about full-time employment. Now, the LCBO is going to come back and say, boy, you sure picked a wrong time to ask for it, because our model is under some threat. This is a government in Ontario that is uh, open for the first time in probably 40 years. We've seen this openness to selling beer and wine in grocery stores. Suddenly, the points of contact go up dramatically. Now, it's not liquor per se, but an amazing chunk, probably about uh, one-third of the revenue the LCBO generates is from the sale of wine. And now suddenly all these grocery stores say, well, we want it. The LCBO says to the workers, this is probably the wrong time for us to talk about a lot of full-time employment. We don't know the full impact of these grocery stores. And by the way, more grocery stores all the time are getting the ability to sell wine. So until we know what's going to mean for our bottom line, we're a little reluctant to talk about it now. But I will tell you this, Scott, so both sides have staked out a position, but neither side wants to strike. The LCBO knows that's bad news for them, especially around a long weekend. The union is not going to have any great love lost for it. People say, wait, you've got good jobs, government jobs. Sure, maybe it's part-time, but I'd sure kill for one of those jobs. So no one's going to get any sympathy from the public if, if this actually comes to a strike. I think over the next three weeks there will be a series of meetings, and as has happened in the previous 91 years, we'll dodge the bullet on this. Uh, are, what's, compare uh, the LCBO to other private retailers who are in the same situation. Uh, is there much difference? Uh, who's getting the better, the better deal? Well, in fact, I think most people who work in retail would say that the wages at the LCBO are better. That this, this, it is a cash cow for the government. As such, they have slightly better benefits and they have slightly better rates of pay. 
Granted, again, if you're not quite full-time, but remember, many people in retail are not full-time, and they're not getting the full benefit. So it's, it's not a bad place to work, uh, and I think most people say that's a preferred kind of a job. But the situation isn't unique other than the fact we're going through this this change in the distribution system that we've talked about for years of making the availability of beer and wine more convenient, but no previous government had been willing to do this. Now the, the, the Liberal government in Queen's Park is changing those rules, and it's, it's affecting the LCBO. They want to make sure they can still return the same profit, if you will, to the government so it can fund other activities with it. Uh, should the LCBO do, be doing more to be more a fair employer? Well, I, you know, this is where I think you, you've got a, that's a great question to ask, because if we really are talking about living wages and helping poverty and making sure people can, can really live their lifestyle, the LCBO is, is truly a tremendous profit maker, billions of dollars of profit every year that go back to the government. Uh, if you really want to make a difference, one is to change the minimum wage and change some of those labor standards, but another would be in your own organizations to make sure, whether it's the LCBO or the Lottery Corporation or whoever, make sure that you're leading by example. However, having said that to you, Scott, I don't think the problem here is the wage side of it. I've not heard this come up from either the LCBO or the union that the wages are wrong. It's really more about full-time versus part-time. So I have sympathy. I I would rather see more people in full-time employment. We call part-time employment precarious employment because you're not guaranteed a certain number of hours. But on the other hand, you have to have some flexibility, especially with these changes going on. I I suspect, again, what's going to happen is that the LCBO will reluctantly agree to convert, let's say, 5 or 10% of the workers into full-time positions, but they'll demand that they can keep some percentage that they can reallocate as they need. Uh, You were talking about, of course, the amount of money that the LCBO makes. Uh, When we had a local representative on talking about this prior to Victoria Day, they had said that this is taking money away from our hospitals, health care, education, and such. Is that really true? Because at the end, why would the government be doing this unless it was all about making money? I mean, these licenses cost big money, do they not? Is the government losing money by privatization? So at this moment, at this moment, we actually think they're better off. In fact, by putting the beer and wine in grocery stores, and maybe this scares people when I say this out loud, we actually think we're drinking more, we're consuming more, we're buying more. We've not actually seen the LCBO lose that much, and then you add in the new incremental volume from the grocery stores, it looks like we're consuming more. Now, that, there's another social implication of that, which we'll set aside for just a moment. So at the moment, it doesn't seem to be affecting the bottom line. But remember, we haven't been doing it for very long, and so there may have been an initial rush. We need to see this thing get to equilibrium, and a year after we start selling beer and wine in grocery stores, it's just a little early to know how much of that was the novelty effect. Oh, look, I'm going to buy some just because I can, versus uh, a really a permanent change in behavior. But for the moment... The government's actually making more money out of this system than they were before. Well, why would people be drinking less because it's available at more places? I mean, wouldn't it just make sense? Again, the whole idea behind this is to generate revenue, not to take it out of the coffers. 
Right, and so I, I well, it's not drinking less; they're actually drinking more at the moment, yeah, because of, because of the availability. And and so I think the thinking here is, uh, I don't know, there was something coming up, and you stopped at the store to buy some food for the weekend: hamburgers, hot dogs, whatever for the barbecue. And oops, I, I didn't get to the beer store. Oh, too bad. Now I don't have that excuse. I can do the one-stop shop and pick up some of those extra things. Now, why some people would be concerned, of course, is there's some bad effects from alcohol. But would we go down? Well, what we might do is just simply shift demand. So the grocery stores, they would make the money, but now the LCBO stuck with whatever uh, overhead it has. If it sold less, it would become less profitable. Mm. And We've not seen that at this time, but this is again why the company says, if I can keep workers on part-time status, if the volume starts to go down, I might cancel some of those jobs, do a bit of a layoff so that I can remain just as profitable if my volume is attacked by the grocery stores. Haven't seen it so far, but that's their concern. And where is the beer store on this discussion? Are they are they watching intently, or are they behind the counter? Shh, don't anybody say anything. What, <laughs> where what are they, where's their head in this? So the beer store, of course, is not a government organization. It's actually run by the private sector, run by the various beer companies, primarily Molson Labatt, and I think um, Sapporo uh, has a, a yeah. little chunk of this as well. Um, uh, how they have fought back this, remember at one time they said we should allow people to buy two fours of beer, 24, at the LCBO. Oh, no, 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 no. So they've allowed, the government regulates the LCBO. All the LCBO can sell are six packs. Even the grocery stores, I believe, the most you can buy at this point are six packs. If I'm wrong, you can get to 12, but I don't think you can get 24s in grocery stores. So from their standpoint, this would be a very casual beer drinker. Uh, I, now, Scott, I, I'm not suggesting you, you run f- uh, alcohol-fueled parties, but when you have a few people over the house, six beer is not going to cut it. No. You're going to need a bigger assortment, and thus you'll still go to the, to the beer store. Those people going to the grocery store might be just very casual, and, and frankly, the beer store says, we're not worried about that volume. Now, if the government changed the rules and allowed those grocery stores to sell bigger cases, then the beer store would complain. The problem with wine is we're not selling little miniature bottles of wine. We're selling regular one-liter or 750-milliliter bottles, mm. and, and that's really a direct competitor to the LCBO, whereas the six-packs are not a direct competitor the same way to the beer store. Uh, have we had a beer strike? Uh, in the history of this, uh, yes, although nothing, I think, in the last 20 years. I think you'd have to go back into the 60s or 70s, probably over some, some issue, probably again around wages, but nothing recently. Again, because it's more private sector, they can keep their business a little bit more behind closed doors. But because this has government involvement in it, you, you, many people like to bring the government into the news and then get get the kind of debate that we're having right now. Marvin, I can't let you go without talking about uh, minimum wage. Um, we're, we're talking an awful lot about it, and, and I feel if you bring it up that people assume that you're against it. Um, I, you know, I'm not against anybody making a, a living and, and doing the best they can, but Marvin, it seems when I was a young guy and pushing a broom around a Woolworth store and collecting garbage cans and, and such, I was paid three eighty-five an hour, and that was minimum wage. There wasn't any time in my teenage career that I thought, I can't make a living doing this, because that was never the intention. Right. Uh, what has changed in the sense that now these jobs are becoming full-time employment for people, they are becoming the norm. So I, I guess my question to you is, uh, is the answer here raising the level of income for those who are at what was once considered a starter job, is that the answer? 
Or is the answer a government that creates jobs that we can all advance in instead mm-hmm. of trying to, you know, uh, earn a living at a drive through Mm-hmm. Well, let me kind of do that in reverse order if I can. It's very hard for a government to create jobs. All the government can really do is create a climate for the private sector to create jobs. So you want to make sure you have the welcome mat out, whether it's the municipal government in Hamilton or the provincial government or even the federal government. You want to make sure you have the welcome mat out to try to get the scientific sector or the green energy sector or whatever it happens to be to make those kind of investments that get those really good paying jobs. Unfortunately, the reality is that we've seen a shift. That shift has been primarily from the manufacturing sector to the service sector, and wages tend to be lower in the service sector, service sector being things like retail or maybe restaurants, hospitality, those sorts of things. And you're absolutely right. One of the big changes has been that, yes, we still have summer workers, students who push the broom to make a little side money, but there's a number of people now, that's their primary income. And there were some stats issued just the other day that said uh, uh, roughly, I think it was 25 percent of workers who are in minimum wage jobs are between the ages of 20 and 29. There's another 20 percent are between 30 and 39 that for, I think, 75 percent of these were held by women, and those 75 percent of women of those, again, another 75 percent of the 75 percent, they're the primary bread earner in the family, and, and you really can't feed a family on minimum wage at 11.60 an hour. So the, the question that people have is that $15 wage Where they've already moved to these kinds of wages, we have seen virtually no changes in employment. So that bugaboo that suddenly the retail sector is going to terminate a bunch of people, we've not seen that happen. What The only thing we've seen is a bit of inflation. Inflation caused in two ways. One, that the small businesses cannot absorb these wage increases. Their profit margins at a restaurant or at a retail store are too small. So they are forced to raise their prices, but they're not forced to raise their prices by 70% or even 20%. Labor makes up a very small part of the total, so they may increase prices by 3 or 4%. The other thing that happens, though, is that these people getting this wage increase at the lowest end of the spectrum are spending this money. They're not making investments in RSPs. They're not trying to put a boathouse on their, their cottage up in the Muskoka. They, they will spend this money. They'll spend it on things like food or buying a new refrigerator for the house or getting the kids some new running shoes or clothing. And that also creates inflation because that stimulates our economy. Wherever they've done this, that little bit of inflation for a year or so, and a truly a little bit meaning 1% to 2% bump in inflation for a year or two, it's had so many wonderful benefits, and there's been very few downsides to this. I do get people concerned that there will be the odd anomaly. So here's this kid, as you say, in grade 11 who's pushing the broom, and suddenly he gets more money, and he doesn't necessarily need more money, but we're not doing it for him. He's got a collateral benefit, if you will, from all this. The real thing is that cadre of people, and there's a large number of them who are working these minimum wage jobs because that's all they can get. We want to make sure that they, their family can be fed, that they're not going to food banks, they're not supplementing this low wage with other kinds of social assistance. That's the strategy that they're trying to put out there. So, are, are, so in the, at the end of the day, are these starter jobs, which were once considered starter jobs, is that the future? Well, that but, and the you know, is the answer. Yeah. Is the answer raising the minimum wage or trying to create an environment that does bring opportunity? 
It's both. So what we're trying to say to people is get more education, try to advance, try to move your way up. Unfortunately, what we're seeing at the moment is there are people getting left behind from the old economy into the new economy. If I can use Stelco as an example, that you could go to work at Stelco with maybe a grade 11, grade 12 education, work there for 30, 40 years, uh, make you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. As we've automated those sectors, or as they have changed, we've had workers in their thirties, forties, and fifties uh, downsized out of a job. We look at our new sector in Hamilton. What do we talk about? We talk about education and healthcare. You've got to have at least one degree, if not two, to work in those sectors. Do I turn to a person who's fifty and say? Okay, go back to school now. Well, by the time I graduate, it'll be too late for me. Mm. How do we help them bridge all of this? So we still want to create the opportunity for the young person to aim at a career that's not minimum wage, but how do we also help those people who, for whatever reason, our economy has left behind? Do we simply treat them as more social assistance? I think, again, when you talk to people, well, I don't want my taxes to go up. I don't want to spend more money on welfare. Well, this might be a way to help them without you and I paying a fortune in taxes. Uh, you're talking about the transition from an old to a new economy. Will this? Will we be talking about this? Will this have less of an impact 10, 15 years from now? No, I'm afraid we're, this will be coming and we're talking about for years and years and years. Again, a couple of reasons. On one hand, we used to have people retire at age 65 so we could count on some more jobs opening up for those young people. Because mandatory retirement's gone, people are holding on to jobs. They're working into 70, 75. Some because they have to, others because they're just simply having too much fun. And look, there's no expiry on my brain. No, no one says my brain went bad at age 70, so I want to still contribute. How do we do this? And then here's the other side of it, automation. You know, you go to McDonald's today, you don't have to speak to anybody. You walk up to a tote board and, and stamp your hand a few times on and you've ordered. Go to an ATM, or maybe you don't even do that. You just go online at midnight at home on your phone and do your banking. All of these are having implications for jobs, and unfortunately it's happening so fast We're not sure all of those implications. So I think we're still going to see people who, unfortunately, as we become more and more digital, will wind up being left behind. And that whole challenge of what's that next generation of jobs, or it could be like Star Trek, not to sound like a trekker here, but you know, in that world, nobody works for a living. We're all... We're all unemployed, and we just get the resources we need from those machines on the wall. Uh, you know, I think that whole question of even a, a 35-hour work week, maybe in Sweden they've already moved to a 30-hour work week. Maybe we should be talking about things like that to create employment for all. Well, we seem to be talking about the opposite. We te- seem to be talking about the imbalance. I remember, uh, you know, back in the 80s reading material that said, you know, we'll be so with technology, we'll be so computerized that we'll only be working four-day weeks. Well, no, that didn't happen. What happened is they fired the guy next to you, and now you're doing his job because it's easier so is this the pendulum swinging back is this how is this how the world says to capitalism hey you got to take care of your people Yes, I, I certainly think this is part of it. So remember in Hamilton, we're also doing a pilot. I don't want to call it a living wage, but it's sort of a guaranteed minimum wage for people that can, can uh, feed their families. We're part of this pilot along with some other places up north. Mm-hmm. This is another approach the government's taking and saying that this might be another efficient way to do this. Uh, and I think we're experimenting right now because, look, here's the bottom line. Forty years, government has been trying to deal with poverty in this country, and they've made no progress using the old methods. We've got to be trying some new ways to think about these things. If you have Tom Cooper on, he would probably tell you that the $15 wage is lovely, but it's not enough. Today, mm-hmm. a living wage is around 1650 
I'm a believer. Let's let's light a candle rather than curse the darkness. We've made a move. Now let's study it carefully, see what the impacts are, see if this might be one of those solutions to the problem. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, lots of, this happens all the time, cities, uh, within cities, communities, especially school zones, things like this. Uh, people want, especially in residential areas, people to slow down. And of course, a uh, horrific accident uh, just recently in Waterdown with a young girl who, of course, uh, lost her life in, in, a, uh, in a fatality after running out into the street. Uh, and municipalities across the land have been trying many ways to slow people down, whether it's red light cameras, whether it's photo radar in uh, some jurisdictions. We used to have it. It's gone now. And another way is uh, with these signs, and you may have seen them. I didn't realize we had so many of them because you don't see them all that often, but you certainly do see them. And this is a, uh, a sign that is on the side of the road. And basically, it would have a radar device inside it, I'm guessing. And as you approach the sign, which has the posted speed limit on it, 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 it gives you your speed and flashes a light if you are, in fact, speeding. Apparently, these work quite well in slowing down traffic. For some reason, this resonates with people. Uh, they're saying that when they see their speed, people feel guilty and they slow down. And at the end result, that's what we're trying to do, is slow traffic down. Now, what's the difference between having one of these and having an actual camera on it that takes the picture and issues a ticket when you're speeding? I'm not quite sure. But we're accepting of these, but not necessarily of photo radar. However, that could change as we keep adding red light cameras, and people seem to be more uh, accepting uh, of this technology. But... Now it's even going one step further in the sense that, and I didn't realize this as well, that the city can monitor this information and this sign. Now uh, the city is talking about uh, allowing you to monitor the situation in these signs. Let's bring in David Ferguson, Traffic Operations Superintendent with the City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Yourself? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, Tell us about these signs. Tell us what they do. Yeah, so the signs that you're talking about are radar message boards, and uh, essentially what they're doing is they're a tool uh, for us to put out into uh, the neighborhoods and on our, our roadway system uh, to raise awareness to the motorists of what their vehicle speed is. And as you mentioned, the, the signs usually come along with a speed limit sign so that uh, when you're going faster than the speed limit, uh, you're aware of it because the sign flashes at you. Are you first of all, do these seem to work? Yeah, we, they're they're very uh, uh, popular. Uh, a lot of residents request them, and and we have a considerable number of them out uh, on our roadways. Uh, they do work. They do help to raise awareness to to uh, motor vehicle speeds. Uh, as you sort of said there, it uh, does uh, implement a little bit of guilt on a motorist who is speeding, and, and people do have a tendency to reduce their speed when they see them. Uh, we have found that over long periods of time or long stretches, uh, there can be an adjustment where vehicle speed averages will have a tendency to go back up. However, for the most part, uh, they are very successful. So you can monitor this data, correct? 
Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, actually. It, it updates uh, every five minutes or so. Uh, there's two programs uh, within our portal. One is a, a city map that shows the locations of every place we've had a radar message board and the ones that are live and ones that are, are old locations. Mm-hmm. And I have another uh, line here that uh, gives me the average speed, uh, 85th percentile speed, max speed, and minimum speeds. So over time, you have the ability to see if, in fact, you have slowed down traffic in a certain neighborhood. Yeah, correct. It's a it's a tool for us to monitor, and it works both sides. I mean, we, we do get complaints about uh, people are speeding on a specific roadway, so this provides us with a snapshot of what's occurring. Uh, sometimes there, there aren't issues. Uh, sometimes you see some sporadic issues, and other times you can identify that uh, you actually do have an issue occurring. Uh, that being said, it collects the data from when the machine goes off. So what does it collect? It would collect the speed from the oncoming car and, the, and so, the time, I'm guessing? Correct. So every time a car approaches, the radar unit will pick up the speed of that vehicle, and that speed gets recorded. And But you're not getting any identifiable information like a license number or anything like that? No, we don't. Uh, we don't have any of that. No, that that would come as uh, part of that Bill sixty five that's right. just recently gone through the third reading. So, are you surprised how popular these things are, Dave? Are you surprised that people are asking for them? Uh, no, I'm not. To be honest with you, I mean there there seems to be a, a growing concern within our our city uh, with respect to vehicle speeds and neighborhood livability and neighbor neighborhood safety and. And people are, are worried about the safety of their children. And, and as you mentioned, we had a, a terrible incident last uh, the other week. And, and so it, it's at the top of everybody's mind, and, and uh, it seems to be a growing concern as it relates to, to collisions. Uh, Dave, are these signs permanent fixtures, or are they moved around from time to time? Uh, so uh, last year through our Hamilton Strategic Road Safety Program, we bo- bought uh, eight radar message boards per ward. Those eight boards get moved around every six to 12 months. So they circulate within a ward. Uh, There are some other devices in which uh, area councillors have uh, purchased those boards and uh, we leave those up permanently. Wow. So uh, a neighborhood can actually sponsor their own. Correct. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, Are they difficult to move? Are they difficult to relocate? Um, not, uh, they're not too difficult. Uh, I mean, our operations crews do, do a great job of uh, installing anything that, that needs to be installed. Uh, it's more of a case where we have so many of them that it, it would be really time consuming and, and use up a lot of the operations staff time uh, to go out and have to move these things every couple of weeks. So that's why we do them for extended periods of time. And there's like 120 of these in the city? That's correct. And mostly residential areas, I'm guessing? Yeah, primarily residential roadways or two-lane roadways, one lane in each direction. We've we've found that where we put them out on roadways where there's more than one lane traveling in a direction, uh, the device has difficulty trying to pick up the the actual speed. Right. Uh, So when did you start? uh, Obviously, uh, you guys collect information with these. Uh, They're a tool for you, not only for slowing the traffic down there, but you can actually go on and see how these are performing in certain areas, what the speed of the traffic is in certain areas. When did you start getting or how did you come up with the idea to let the public access this? 
Well, it's the case uh, uh, in terms of a corporation. Our city manager ha- has talked a lot about uh, this sort of new age of open data and, and crowdsourcing and information sharing. Uh, I personally have been doing a lot of work in reviewing uh, Vision Zero programs throughout North America. And, and it's very clear that this is a direction that corporations and municipalities are going is to share this information and make it available to the public. The public uh, want to see it. They want to they want to be engaged and, and be part of the solution. So uh, we've been working on a number of uh, different initiatives this year, and this is one of them to, to start bringing this information forward on our website to uh, open it up to the public to, to view. Uh, obviously, information is a good thing. No one's going to deny that. Does it get to a point where this information gets ahead of the city? And by that, I mean, you, you know, they're monitoring it more than you are and, and, and maybe interpreting it differently. Yeah, I know in a couple of situations where where we have uh, provided some information to to uh, requesters that uh, they've kind of taken the the information a little differently than than we take it, and and that is uh, uh, a case that may happen. However, it, you know, sharing information and people raising awareness towards something that they may see that we as staff might, might not have seen, uh, I don't see as a negative. Um, it's all about improving safety. It's all about engaging and empowering the the public and being part of the solution going forward to make our roads safer, and that's the direction we're headed. Uh, obviously, if you put a camera on one of these, it becomes a photo radar unit. Uh, can you see, and we know for years that uh, that this was out in the past and, and governments got rid of it, uh, is there, do you find that uh, there's more of a tolerance for this sort of thing now than there was in the past? Uh, I think uh, overall, yeah, I think uh, people recognize what these are, that these are a tool. This isn't a uh, an automated speed enforcement device such as a red light camera or the the photo radar, which will, will be coming in, in the next little while. So, Do you think that's uh, inevitable? It is coming? Yeah, well, it, it's gone through the yeah. third reading in the province and is now moving on to Royal Ascent. We sit on a working group uh, that is currently reviewing uh, what the process will be in terms of implementation and the guidelines. So, yeah, it's uh, it's coming quick. This bill has probably been one of the fastest moving bills I've seen in my career that's ever moved through the province. So, uh, Has there anybody ever suggested putting a camera on one of these signs? Uh, yes, we, we've had a, a number of requests over the years uh, to uh, or reinstitute uh, photo radar. Uh, of course, we didn't have the, the tools and the legislation to be able to do that, but uh, come uh, the next year in a bit, uh, that will be there. So, uh, Do people want to track the information of red light cameras the same way? Uh, no, they don't. We haven't had requests uh, for that. How come? How come you think there's a difference in the interest in one and not the other, Dave? Uh, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. I think uh, people are more. There seems to be a, a higher level of of concern as it relates to uh, local roadways and incidents in the local roadways. People are are almost offended by it that people are speeding down their their roadways right. and. They're concerned about the safety of their children and family, and they want to, you know, live and enjoy their community. And so, uh, they get uh, upset when someone is speeding down their street or a collision occurs 
whereas when you look at red light cameras, they're, they're at signalized intersections, uh, bigger locations where there's a lot of volume. Uh, and I think there's a sense of, you know, if, if you run a red light and you get a ticket, well, then you deserve it kind of thing. Right. Uh, because people are requesting, requesting access to this information, this data that uh, these machines are recording as far as speeds and traffic flow and such, have you ever been asked for uh, – are people wanting more information than this? Do people want people's identities? Is this going to become a shaming thing? That's why I asked about the red light cameras because theoretically, uh, if people want those stats, what's to stop them from asking for a picture? I'm sure there's privacy laws there that would be violated. But have, have you ever got to that extent yet? Yeah, I mean, we, we may receive a general request. Uh, as it relates to red light cameras, for example, you know, how many violations occurred at this intersection? Uh, we don't get into fine details. We would never release uh, a person's personal information. We don't even have access to it. It goes in through uh, a program through the province and the city of Toronto where they process all the tickets. Um, so we don't even, as the city, see, you know, who that violation was or um license plate numbers or anything like that. So we don't even have access to that. Are we going to see more radar message boards around the city? Yeah, I, I suspect we'll, we'll continue with our program. Like I said, we, we have a lot that are already out there, and, and uh, you know, we, we have so many staff that can, can do the work. So, you know, if we get more that uh, are permanent, we can stick them up and leave them, and we don't have to revisit them. Um, but I think what we have now is, is uh, achievable to maintain. Um, so we may have a, a couple more coming up, but uh, for the most part, we'll just keep circulating what we have. When do you think we will see photo radar, Dave? Uh, my professional opinion is uh, I suspect probably it'll be approved. Uh, mm, I suspect the, the legislation will be approved in, in the, the Highway Traffic Act uh, early next year. Uh, I suspect the actual devices won't start getting installed until probably 2019. Uh, when this rolled out the first time, I don't know if you're old enough to remember it. I am. Uh, it was a, you know, a van on the side of the road <laughs> and a sign yeah. saying you're entering a zone. Um, will it be different this time? Will the technology have changed things? Will these be fixed cameras like a red light camera as opposed to something you can move around? Yeah, and those are the discussions we're having right now is is what do these devices look like? What what are we going to be implementing? Are they devices that you can move around? Are they going to be fixed locations? Uh my personal thought is that they'll they'll probably be devices that can be moved around from location to location. Um and that there will be signage up that's raising awareness that people are entering uh a speed enforcement area and uh and we don't want to hide that. We want to you know, our, our goal from a traffic safety perspective is to uh, bring vehicle speeds down, to eliminate serious injuries and fatal uh, injuries, um, to reduce collisions overall. So we're not going to hide the fact that they're out there. We want to do the exact opposite. We want to make people aware that these devices are out there. Uh, they're there for their, their safety and, and everybody's safety, and we want to make sure everybody's getting home at night to, to see their families. You can certainly see attitudes change changing on all of this, can't you, Dave? Yeah, I mean, it really has uh, in the past um, past five years, there has been a, a big shift as it relates to traffic safety and um, people's 
um, they're uneasy, unhappy with with people that that drive carelessly or do things that endanger other people. And and there's a, a very big momentum that's really starting to push forward. Uh, a lot of that comes from the Vision Zero program and, and people who are supporting that. Um, and so I, I suspect, you know, there'll, there'll be big changes in the way things operate in municipalities overall across North America and the world, really. David Ferguson has been with us, Traffic Operations Superintendent with the City of Hamilton, talking about a public web portal so residents can monitor speeding uh, or traffic uh, speeders across uh, the city. It is 225. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks again for the time, Dave. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.